Right, this is episode three of Emergency on Planet Sport in association with Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. My name is Jonathan Overend, and we're going to start talking in this episode about the existential threat to sport. Yep, that's right. And if it sounds a bit dramatic, and if you think it's a bit like scaremongering, well, hang on a second. Come with us on this. We really want to go on a journey here, a journey of discovery, a journey of realisation of the potential impacts to sport in the future. And if we're going to look at sport's uneasy relationship, if you like, with climate change, we have to look at those which are going to be potentially most affected. And one of them is cricket. We kind of expect it to happen, don't we? Like like every other sport, we get used to taking sport for granted. I know that I do in my time uh, watching and reporting on sport. But I guess if the global pandemic has shown us anything, it's that sometimes we have to get used to life without the things we love. It's about adapting. And if we can adapt to something like COVID, surely we can adapt to something like climate change in order to protect not just our sport, but protect our planet too. So the last episode, episode two, was the heat extremes. This is taking that on a little bit. This is the water extremes, the cricket extremes. Floods, drought, floods, drought, the cricket extremes. You're in or you're out. The runs flow like springs, a constant supply. Set for three figures, till form runs dry. And then, the next innings, fruitless toil in the outfield, when suddenly, ripper, the ball spinning minefield. Floods, drought, floods, drought, the cricket extremes. You're in or you're out. The same with the weather. Rainfall suspension, Duckworth and Lewis, their everyday mentions. Over the continents, too little water. Ground staff desire it, but farmers require it. Floods, drought, floods, drought. The cricket extremes, you're in or you're out. The cosy sport cliches, too much, too little. For cricket, an issue that's far too literal. Floods, drought. Floods, drought, the cricket extremes. You're in or you're out. Corbridge is a rural village about 20 miles west of Newcastle-Pontine, just near Hadrian's Wall, so quite near the Scottish borders. I'm John Maud, chairman of Corbridge Cricket Club. We're a village club and we're proud of being a village club. We've got no great aspirations in terms of cricket, although we play cricket to a decent standard. We're more about being a community village club and we're proud of that. The Tyne is a fast-flowing river. It rises in the North Pennines. This was shifting at some pace by the time it had got over the flood bank. It was a Saturday morning yeah, storm. Desmond it was, which people will remember. The river rose really fast, flooded the area. It was about four feet over the whole of our cricket ground. There was just debris everywhere. A massive shipping container just from the rugby ground had sailed about 200 yards and landed between two willow trees on our mid-wicket boundary. Our fence along the cricket ground had ended up about 300 metres down the river in a tree. Our gravel car park 
had been washed right into the pitch. Inside, there's just mud everywhere. The smell is beginning to get quite unpleasant. Just the sort of damp, horrible smell, possibly a bit of sewage mixed in, I guess, unpleasantly. You go down there and your heart sinks and, and you kind of think, how the hell are we going to get out of this? What happened in Corbridge was devastating and if it weren't for the efforts of volunteers like John and his team, that beautiful part of England would have lost its cricket club. We started getting calls early on the Saturday morning. I was actually in Leeds at the time as it happened. Our groundsman, Simon Walker, came down to the ground on that Saturday morning uh, and was able to shift a bit of stuff upstairs and then the police and uh, fire services evacuated the whole area early on that Saturday morning and then we watched on the news we weren't allowed anywhere near the river I was about four metres in a space of a few hours and actually went over the flood bank which runs along the side of the cricket ground in between the cricket ground and the river. We have a rugby ground, Tyndale Rugby Club, next door to us which is actually slightly lower and the water re reached the crossbars on the rugby posts so that will give people some idea of the height of the water. People who say, oh well, you know, you can put barriers, you can put defences, <laughs> probably need to see it in action and you realise that, you know, that it's a, a power of nature that you can't do much about. My name is Dr Russell Seymour. I'm the Chief Executive of an organisation called BASIS, which is the British Association for Sustainable Sport. These floods come through and it, it isn't just that so you get a, a, a wet pitch that needs to be sorted out. Um, yeah, the facilities, the pavilion gets flooded out and, and those resources need to be renewed. Um, and that's a huge cost. I sort of, uh, a bit famously at the cricket club, got quite nostalgic about old tierns and, you know, photographs, obviously, stuff like that, that everybody, but I get a bit emotional about old crockery and stuff like that. And just seeing all that, you know, debris all over the place is, is, is hard emotionally. I'm kind of joking about it now, but emotionally it's really tough because I know it's just the cricket ground and I know it's, you know, we don't live there, no lives were lost, thankfully, anywhere nearby. But it's a place that you've invested in a lot emotionally over the years. My understanding is ECB are actually providing some good grants to support clubs, but the amount you have to allocate for that uh, is increasing every year. So how long is it viable? Um, and it is necessary to keep these clubs going. The English cricket board, a guy called Dan Musson, who's the facilities manager, came down in just quite a few days actually and stood in his wellies on the ground and very very quickly we agreed a financial package so one of the ways we got through it is the help that's out there and it is out there and it was fantastic for us you know there's money involved there's finance involved there's hard work involved actually all of that is relatively easy but dealing with the emotions of it and, and people's reaction to it is, is actually pretty tough it's people who play cricket who also come and watch cricket so the crowds at our test match grounds who are coming to watch England play international cricket, more so than football or rugby, they are people who also play the game. So to, to get people engaged in playing really is important. So it, it's vitally important to English cricket that these recreational clubs actually continue. 
actually you can pretty much, apart from the ice caps, tell the full story of the range of climate impacts through the test playing nations of international cricket. It's quite striking. My name's Dom Goggins. I run the parliamentary group for renewable and sustainable energy. I work with the British Association for Sustainable Sport and I've written a couple of big reports on the impacts of climate change on sport. In England, the big problem is increased disruption because of rain and 40% of grassroots or recreational cricket grounds are built on floodplains. Like That's a big problem. Well, cricket, I can see, is clearly vulnerable. I mean, there were a number of clubs affected at the same time as us quite severely across the north of England. And cricket obviously needs flat land and, and flat land quite often, certainly in these northern parts, is near rivers. So we're pretty clear that we're getting more thunderstorms than we used to, more very heavy rain, possibly a similar amount of rain, but concentrated in much heavier bursts. And there's financial implications. You know, one particular county lost around a million pounds of revenue because of rain-affected T20 matches. So it's not just the spectator experience, it's not just the frustration of players, it's actually, at a county level, there's impact on on the bottom line, on on actually profits coming into the clubs, money coming into the clubs. And that will be reflected in recreational cricket as well. You know, a lot of these clubs rely on their viability, not just on the subs that the players actually pay, but a lot of it then comes from the revenues from the bar, on on the drinks and on the food. If you're not playing a match, you don't turn up, you don't use the bar afterwards, no revenue coming into the club. So yes, look, there are economic impacts for this as well. The cricket season's a relatively short sports season. It's particularly short for juniors who really you know from the end of April really to the middle of July more or less because by the time you get to the school holidays uh, a lot of them are away and and it it keeps going a bit but most of the leagues finish then so it's really only kind of two and a half months so if you lose three or four weeks of that people will begin to question I guess whether it's uh, worth continuing to play I don't you know there's no obvious answer to that for cricket. I think an issue with club cricket and flooding and and bad weather in general is quite serious. There have been drops in the number of people playing cricket, um, also playing football. You know, let's not forget that pitches are waterlogged for for rugby and football in the winter in the UK as well. There will be other factors. I'm sure there are many other factors, but weather and the lack of opportunity to play will put some people off. Um, You know, why would you want to spend your Saturday afternoon, a rainy Saturday afternoon, sat waiting to see if you can play when you could be with your family and if that happens four five six weeks in a row or or whatever then your enthusiasm may drop uh, particularly you know you're you're paying to actually play for that club so it will be a contributing factor in the reduction of the number of people that are playing uh, recreational sports if that reaches a tipping point then it massively affects the whole game because if you don't have a grassroots or a recreational game then you don't have a base on which to build the elite side of the game, the pyramid gets smaller and smaller and smaller and the long-term impact of that is that the quality of cricket throughout the game reduces. So you have more disruption. Over the long term, you'll have far less quality and that's just in England. This is the flip side of the water issue. 45% of recreational clubs suffer because of the absence of water and that's particularly true in the southeast. We are getting more periods of hot, dry weather. Which we're in the north of England, you know, we didn't used to have to water our square that much. We watered 
when we were preparing a pitch, but now we have to water the whole pitch because it, it's drying out. People remember the lockdown this year in, in 2020. I mean, it really didn't rain here from the middle of March to the end of May. That has an impact on costs. It has an impact on volunteers because all that stuff takes more work and more time and the only thing we pay for is a contractor to cut our outfield everything else that's done here is done voluntarily it's hard work sometimes without a doubt so the more the weather impacts on a sort of you know not massive scale but a significant scale the more time is taken for volunteers the more cost is involved through watering through looking after fields more it, it will have an impact. I would love to see some really clear advice on how we can maintain our outfield and our square and indeed the area around the cricket ground in a more environmentally sustainable way. There's bits out there, but I, I'd love to see that because we certainly wouldn't want to be kind of world leaders in that and <laughs> lose all our games and get a reputation for having a terrible playing surface. The Corbridge experience should be a warning. And they know it could happen again. So they're doing their bit, they're making changes, they are more environmentally conscious now. But if they want advice, it's important that they get it. The England and Wales Cricket Board do make resources available through their website, specifically on flooding risk, but also on water and energy consumption. But perhaps there's the need for more. Richard Black from ECIU. I think we're seeing some other examples of this in other areas that could be useful. For example, in the UK, there are stacks of people that love gardening. Well, the Royal Horticultural Society, which is, if you like, the, the national body that looks after gardening, gives advice on gardening, that kind of thing, they've published a big document which is aimed at helping ordinary people to prepare their gardens and think about their carbon footprint. We're seeing in golf, you know, the Royal and Ancient Club at St Andrews putting out this kind of thing, trying to draw people into the dialogue and, and sort of help people prepare for this. So I think in cricket, it absolutely could be useful. When you think of your typical, you know, village cricket ground with, with one pavilion and probably one person who goes up on a volunteer basis and tries to prepare the ground, I think very few village grounds are going to have, very few village clubs are going to have that sort of expertise within their community. So uh, as much guidance as, as could be given, I think would be really, really useful. There's no doubt cricket can do more. Does the sport truly get the urgency here? The show tends to go on. And if flooding is one end of the water extreme, the other provides a totally different threat to cricket. Yeah, flooding is uh, just part of the problem. If you look at uh, countries, particularly in South Asia, they are struggling with a distinct lack of water. I'm Nikesh Raghani and I'm an international cricket broadcaster. The IPL, the Indian Premier League, it's the biggest product in T20 cricket globally. It's made up of eight franchises, all owned by celebrity owners, by billionaires. It's uh, got lots of razzmatazz, lots of Bollywood film connections, lots of the best players in the world playing it. But what use is that if you don't have a ground to play on? That's what we saw in 2016 in Maharashtra, the home of the Mumbai Indians and back then the, the Pune franchise as well. There just wasn't any water to, to sort of treat the wickets. Matches in the world's biggest T20 competition just had to be moved out of the state. The Maharashtra drought. In India, I've got people who I speak to regularly out there. And uh, roughly about 10 years or so ago, uh, even up until 
uh, more recently, maybe in the last five years or so, they would be able to predict when the monsoon season is coming. So it would stretch from around May until the end of August, beginning of September. And in different parts of India, they could almost pinpoint, uh, not quite the exact day, but almost the exact week every year when the rains are going to start. So the farmers can organise their crops, cricket curators and, and people like that can start you know, treating their grounds uh, in the appropriate way based on when the monsoons are going to happen. Right now, it's all over the place. I mean, some states in India aren't getting rain right up until the end of July. Some are not getting very much at all. And, uh, you know, particularly in Western India, when you look at states like Maharashtra, Gujarat, there are really inconsistent rainfalls in the last five years or so. And uh, it's not only a problem in terms of the cricket grounds there, it's causing a lot of problems, not just for them, but obviously for the economy, the farmers, uh, you know, nobody can really predict when this rain is going to fall. The subcontinent, South Asia, is a little bit harder to predict because when you look at the scientific projections of rainfall, they're not very certain. What we probably will see is, is more sort of extreme examples of rainfall because that's one of the kind of overriding uh, issues of climate change. It tends to make, you know, whatever you get in the way of extremes, it tends to make them more extreme. So you'd expect to see the rain being concentrated into sort of shorter periods and more intense bursts. Of course, there's going to be much greater demand for water in South Asia as the population expands and people get richer. We're also going to see an issue in the north of the country about a billion people in South Asia get their water indirectly from water that's stored in the Himalayas as ice. And that, of course, is now starting to melt and really unknown issue of what happens to that water supply over the decades. It's a massive problem and I think that was uh, ultimately what uh, led to those matches uh, in 2016 being taken out of Maharashtra. I mean, you know, yeah, we mentioned cricket, you know, cricket pitches being watered. I mean, that is the, the least of anybody's worries when, you know, a country of over a billion people is suffering a drought. The, the priority, I suppose, has to be drinking water, uh, you know, farmers, they need water to water their crops, to feed the nation as well. There's, there's so many bigger problems than cricket. It is a serious problem. Uh, they, they haven't had any such issue since 2016 in terms of a drought in a particular state causing matches to be moved out of that state. But it is an ongoing problem. And uh, we do see it with the unpredictable monsoons as well. You know, some states are just getting less than half the rainfall that they normally would in a year. And uh, that is going to be an ongoing problem uh, with this climate change. I think cricket definitely is one of those sports that is at risk. And I think the main reason for that is, well, first of all, a lot of matches take quite a long time. So players are exposed to challenging conditions for a long time. But even more than that, the state of the surface is absolutely key to the game. And so, you you know, as we, we know, you cannot play on a surface that's too damp. And if the surface is absolutely dry, that gives you many other problems as well. And the, the groundsmen or the curators um, have to spend stacks and stacks of time watering and preparing the ground. One of the most striking examples was um, three years ago when Australia were touring South Africa and they were due to be playing a test in the Newlands ground in Cape Town. Cape Town was by then into about its third year of a four-year drought and 
People in Cape Town were queuing up at standpipes to get water, just to have water to drink. So in that kind of environment, going out and using stacks and stacks of water on, on the Newlands pitch wasn't, wasn't really an option. And it was touch and go, really, as to whether that match would go ahead at all. By the way, scientists have subsequently done an analysis of that drought, and they showed that it was made about three times more likely to happen because of climate change. I mean, in terms of air pollution, there, there are some cricketers in India, high-profile cricketers, Virat Kohli, Rohit Sharma, even Sachin Tendulkar, uh, who's now, of course, been retired for a few years, you know, massive global reach he's still got. They, they do, you know, lend themselves to campaigns regarding air pollution in Mumbai, in Delhi in particular. They try their best on that front. And, uh, you know, I don't know if anybody really listens because the, the Delhi smog situation and the Delhi air pollution level just keeps getting worse year on year. I mean, we saw a test match in 2017 between India and Sri Lanka in Delhi. Um, the, the test match just had to be interrupted a few times. I mean, they were off the field for, for half a day at one point just because of the, the, the level of air pollution. You just couldn't play cricket in it. The Sri Lankans were complaining that they couldn't breathe properly when they're out there, and that is a real safety issue. So, uh, you know, that air pollution continues to be a problem. The future of holding cricket matches in Delhi has, has got to be called into question because the safety of players is paramount, the safety of spectators as well uh, inside the ground, uh, all the staff that are, that are working to get these pitches ready. If it's not safe, if they can't breathe properly, then uh, you shouldn't really be holding cricket matches there as well. So uh, air pollution is a big problem. Uh, you, you do see high-level Indian cricketers talking about the air pollution, but I don't really see anybody in India taking much notice. Back in the UK, counties are bracing themselves for the unknown once more. The cricketing summer, that good old English and Welsh cricketing summer. We're famed for having a fantastic walk through the park, past the Principality Stadium, past Cardiff Castle, which on a, a sunny day is tough to beat in world cricket. I'm Dan Cherry, Head of Operations at Gamorgan County Cricket Club based in Cardiff, Wales. We're very blessed to be situated in a, in a grade two listed parkland and we've been described by a few people as a kind of a boutique type ground. We like to kind of provide a, a very warm Welsh welcome to all visitors. You'll certainly get plenty of hoyle as they say in, in Wales. We do tend to kind of cop a fair amount of rain. It becomes pretty bleak on those rainy days and it becomes a real challenge for us. Some of the analysis that we've completed, certainly in the 2000s and, and since, has shown that we've probably lost as much cricket as any other county in the UK due to poor weather. So yeah, we've had some challenging seasons. The one that really stands out was, was 2012, where we were due to host five T20 Blast home fixtures and three were completely rained off. Uh, one was kind of fairly hev heavily affected by rain. And, you know, as a business, we saw a real impact on that with, you know, spectators not coming to the stadium, kind of hospitality clients not being able to offer them the usual experience. And it had a knock on effect on the confidence of customers to, to come buy tickets in advance to watch cricket because we all rely on operationally on being able to know what our attendances are and you plan accordingly for, for the amount of people that you've got coming to watch matches. But, you know, there was a real lack of confidence for a few years that we'll wait and see what the weather does. 
before we purchase our tickets we'll buy on the day that makes life really difficult for operators like myself to to be able to kind of get the right amount of people on 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 site staff vendors it also hits our revenue lines because you lose that bit of confidence and people will find alternative you know kind of venues to go to or they'll find other sports or they'll go to indoor music arenas and they'll spend their money elsewhere so you know it, it is a real challenge for cricket Between 2000 and 2017, which is the figures that I've got, 29 of England's 108 home one-day internationals were affected by rain. This is 50 over matches. Around 18% of those have relied on DLS to get to a result. 5% of them have been abandoned. But the rate of disruption has increased by more than 50% since 2010 so of that period between 2000 and 2017 more than half of the of the matches that were disrupted by rain came in the seven year period at the end of it rather than over the whole of the 17 years which correlates very strongly with the impacts of climate change that we're feeling in this country at a county championship level you're looking at nearly 20,000 hours of cricket that have been lost during that time which is about 320,000 overs it's a hell of a lot and again the rates of disruption have massively increased like the years with the most overs lost have all come in the latter part of that period of time to be affected by the weather you know it's probably one of the only sports out there where you know you don't see any play at all if it rains you know and that customer confidence is is hard to gain and it's is very easy to lose and we certainly found that for two or three years it was tough to get that back we've worked for for a number of years now to look at our kind of impact on the environment to look at our impact in the community we've introduced a you know a number of measures over the years kind of looking at our energy consumption and what we can do to reduce that looking at our kind of recycling rates and and how we manage our waste on site we've looked at other alternative energy kind of uses like biomass or pv and we we we've, we've really tried to kind of be good global citizens you know we have an impact on the local community and everybody who comes you know to visit the stadium and you know we want to be seen to be doing the right things you know not just as a business but to help the wider community and and, and do our bit to support you know kind of all these great initiatives out there that to lessen the impact that we've all seen with climate change one of the big challenges and that we all face you know kind of as operators is to get buy-in from the top you know some of the practices that we want to put in place they require support from board level or they perhaps you know need some some small financial investment to get them up and running as sport we need to kind of you know sport operators we need to be able to influence those people higher up who make the decisions um, and get them to support us in our in, you know, in what we want to do. And I think, you know, if we can get some influence at, you know, government level and governing body level, so in our case in cricket, obviously the ECB to support this and to push this out through all of the counties, then I think, you know, we've got a better chance then of getting buy-in from board and chief executive level at the counties. So how can the cricketing future look? Good morning and welcome to Lords, the home of cricket. We can all do our bit, but venues 
can lead on this. I was working at Lords in a in a different role. Dr. Russell Seymour, for 10 years, sustainability manager at the MCC. For me, there was a moment where, or there was an opportunity to look at the impact that a major sporting venue is having. And I looked at uh, recycling rates and, and carbon emissions, energy use, that sort of thing, and, and took a report to the then chief executive, uh, Keith Bradshaw at the time. Um, and he thought it was important. Um, so created the role of sustainability manager back in 2008. And then every project that developed from that, so going 100% renewable energy, 100% wind power, um, removing 2 million pieces of, of plastic from our operations annually, just evolved over that time as, as more people came on board uh, and we wanted to improve the performance. Sometimes we did things a bit differently. We, we implemented our reusable cup scheme in a slightly different way. There was a different emphasis, for example, that many, many specifically on those reusable cup schemes, initially they started off as it was a souvenir cup and you're still encouraging people to take the plastic away and that easily could have ended up in the environment if somebody you know even on the train going home might have thought do I really want to take these cups home with me I've already got a dozen in the cupboard and you know be left there and they wouldn't be recycled and whatever or you know six months later somebody would have just said oh look just chuck them away and they wouldn't be recycled and they'd be out somewhere possibly into the environment possibly just into a landfill or, or incinerated so I really hope that some of the spectators who came to Lords actually kind of took note and thought, maybe I can take this away and, and do things in my own life. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's, it's spot on, really. I mean, that's that's how I I first started seeing some change in the landscape within sport and, and especially cricket was the work that, that Russell carried out. And he was an inspiration for us to kind of begin our journey. And, you know, it was fantastic for me when Russ visited us at one of our international days and kind of gave me a call and said, you know, can I, can I have a look around and look at your waste policies and, you know, come and view how you operate on a match day. And it, it was really good for Russ to say some positive things. In terms of mirroring what we did at Lords um, globally, there could be problems because you do need certain amounts of infrastructure in place. You need waste recycling facilities uh, in order to recycle your waste. You need renewable energy generation to, to use that renewable energy, obviously. But in terms of the operations of a sports venue, there are fundamental things that everybody does. You know, you, you cater, you provide food and drink for your, your spectators. You have security operations, you have cleaning operations, etc. Everybody does the same thing. So everybody can take some actions that are more sustainable. And it shouldn't actually cost too much more because those things are already budgeted and you're already doing them. It's just a changing the way that you do them rather than adding on uh, additional things. Russ has certainly brought about a group of people there who are willing to make change and drive change, which I think is really important. He's gone on now to be one of the founders of Basis, which is doing some absolutely amazing work within sport. And, you know, I found that a great forum for for meeting up with people from other sports and, and actually finding that even though we, we operate with different challenges in the respect of we, we, we're hitting different target markets and we've got very different objectives on, on those kind of areas, there, there are a lot of common themes and I think sustainability and sustainable practice is one that, you know, kind of I've found that all sports share. You know, stand on the shoulder of giants. If somebody's already doing something, copy it, you know, take it on board, adapt it to what you do. There are some very clear, obvious solutions out there. Some of the big ones are around energy use. It's around food. Where do you buy your food from? How do you deal with your food waste? Managing the plastics that you use. So all these things are relatively easy. It's just having the confidence and I guess the knowledge 
to actually and the will the desire to actually change and, and improve uh, improve what you're doing and reduce the impacts of what you're doing in terms of impacts there's an elephant in this episode the elephant in the skies climate consultant dom goggins has reviewed the last ashes series in australia three years ago a single international England cricketer who played in both the Test and the One Day squads in Australia will have clocked up 38,000 air miles. So you've got people zigzagging all over the country. It's because of the way that the tour was constructed. England to Australia and back and flying from match to match. Four different trips to Perth, three different trips to Adelaide, two different trips to Brisbane, two to Melbourne, another to Sydney. It was a proper zigzag. These locations weren't used consequently. Melbourne, Perth, Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne. There was a very easy way to dramatically reduce the carbon footprint of that tour just by structuring it slightly differently. 38,000 air miles, the equivalent of carbon footprint of more than 100 people in the UK just living a normal life. The decisions about how you construct a tour are going to be commercially driven. They are commercial decisions. And the point that I'm making is that too often environmental issues in sport are seen as something you can bolt onto the side of your activities as a kind of corporate social responsibility programme, where actually environmentally sustainable decisions are commercially sound decisions. Environmental sustainability at the heart of a sport's commercial decisions will be better for the sport in terms of the bottom line and its profitability will be better for the sport in terms of its environmental footprint and therefore contributing less to the problem which it is exposed to and which threatens it and it's better in PR terms as well because people want to see sports and the companies and the organisations that they associate themselves with taking environmental issues and taking climate change more seriously. No disrespect to the people that construct these tours they've not got an easy job to do but I don't think I would be surprised if it even entered the thought process. If it did enter the thought process and then it then it was disregarded, I would be more worried than if it didn't enter the thought process. And I think the work that we're trying to do in reports like Hit for Six is show how exposed cricket is to the impacts of climate change. Of all the major pitch sports, it is going to be comfortably the most exposed to the impacts now and over the long term. So for a sport so exposed to the threats of climate change, who's leading the way on this? Where are the cricket influencers? Well, it's, it's not really something you hear about uh, in cricket circles. Nikesh Raghani again. I cover a lot of cricket uh, in England, uh, around the world as well. Uh, lots of you know South Asian teams that I cover and uh, you, you very rarely hear climate change spoken about. Uh, yeah, you might get the odd individual player who might lend him or herself to a campaign of some sort in their country. Um, but in terms of the cricket boards themselves, I, I can't see any real sense of urgency. I mean, we, you know, take Australia, for example, this November, they had record temperatures in certain areas uh, in the mid 40 degrees Celsius as well. Maybe they can't sustain playing in the middle of their summer. I know they've got you know, that tradition of, of playing through Christmas, the Boxing Day test match at the, uh, the MCG, the New Year's test match at the SCG. Traditionally, that's when they play their, their top-level cricket, but perhaps that needs to be looked at. But nobody seems to be talking about these things. 
In India as well, you know, they, they look at uh, the times of the year when the IPL can be held and, and how many millions can be made out of that when the whole of the film industry shuts down uh, for a couple of months uh, in, in India there as well. So uh, it, it takes somebody of high profile, somebody like a Virat Kohli, somebody like an MS Dhoni, you know, the, the captain of the Chennai Super Kings, for example, you know, retired from playing for India, but an absolute legend of, of world cricket, still plays in the Indian Premier League. If he spoke out, perhaps, would that make a difference? Perhaps it would. Perhaps it would. In time, it would be nice to hear from more professional athletes on this, surely the most important subject facing us all in terms of the future of our planet. In the meantime, final word on this to Dan Cherry, one of those on the ground in cricket who properly gets it. And if governing bodies can do more, which they can, it's people like Dan who need to be trusted need to be listened to. I agree that it's not just one part that can solve this. There are many different kind of areas that need to come together. But I think sport is a great influencer. Sport brings people together and sport can portray messages in a very powerful way. If we all do our part as various sports, we can reach out to kind of different sections of society and different areas of the world. And, you know, if everybody played their little part I'm sure that it would make a you know a major contribution for the future and that's the most important thing that you know we at Glamorgan view this it's the future it's our our young members that come to watch us it's the next generation of Glamorgan players and and Welsh players who hopefully go on to play for England it's giving them the best possible chance you know hopefully in in, in future years the work that we do and linked in with other sports I think it can make a real difference next time the motorsport paradox. You know, I'm from a sport that notoriously doesn't have the best reputation for having the best carbon footprint. I think it's something that I've always kind of had a conscience about, but was quite ignorant and, you know, unaware of the impact. So ultimately, when, you know, Formula E came about and now Extreme E, I think it was really exciting that, you know, it's something in my sport that I'm a part of, you know, as an athlete, but also is ticking that box to have that sort of better carbon footprint and have that sort of environmental aspect. What's taken me back more than anything is how much I've learned and how much that kind of awareness has really impacted the way I approach, you know, my life now. That's Jamie Chadwick ahead of her debut in the Extreme E series. She's on episode four of Emergency on Planet Sport. All eight episodes are available to download now. You can subscribe through your usual podcast provider and follow us on social media at Planet Sport Pod. This has been a 9419 production for Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit.